Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep Jameson by Margaret St. Clair. This is first published in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, December 1949. It's described in the editorial introduction uh, this way. Woe be to him who spies upon the secrets of the half-world beneath our own, for though he may see what only few men know, so he will be punished as few men ever have been. Which is pretty mysterious. And the title, Jameson, doesn't really give you anything <laughs> to go by. But uh, the reason I read this is because it's by Margaret St. Clair. And it was in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, which is an excellent magazine, mostly reprints. Um, but they tended to fill their, uh, their uh, extra pages with new authors, uh, with new stories. So in this old uh, magazine, there's older stories uh, by John Buchan and Edison Marshall, and a, a classic by uh, Fitzjames O'Brien, What Was It?, which is um, one of the first invisibility stories. And then we get this sort of strange little piece called uh, Jameson. Um, I think it fits into a larger tradition, um, which I appreciate, and I think that's what she was going for. Uh, but this story's never been republished. This is the only publication. Um, accompanying it on the second page of the story is a, a beautiful illustration by Virgil Finlay, uh, showing us, I guess, Jameson <laughs> um, and um, a mysterious woman. Uh, who is holding an orbicular uh, cup. Indeed. But you know that from having read the story. Mm-hmm. I figured, I figured out that after, although um, I had my mom read me this one, so I didn't get to see the picture until after. And I said, orbicular? And she says, orbicular. <laughs> <laughs> so an orbicular cup is basically, it's a ball with the, with the top cut off. It's a lot like what you would see think of a, a wine glass or a sherry glass or something like that, but without the uh, stem. Right. Um, and speaking of wine and sherry, I will just remind everyone that had you read it rather than heard it, you'd know that Jameson is spelled J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. So it's not a covert reference to the Jameson that's closest to my heart, ah. which is Irish whiskey. Right, I never even thought of that. Um, this is relatively short. Would you care to read it for us? I would love to. The curse, said the man who was sitting in the armchair with the orange upholstery, which fell upon Jameson was unjustified. As a husband, he was kind. As a father affectionate, he met his payroll promptly. Never once did he transgress the thin but definite line which separates good business dealing from skullduggery. It is true he was not much given to piety nor efflorescent in the matter of good works, but nowadays, gentlemen, who is? Jameson's doom was not only unjustified, it was inappropriate. It was the sort of doom which ought to have been imposed on a poet or a reasonably romantic man of letters, rather than on a prosperous roofing contractor. 
But when the second week in August turned intolerably hot and from day to day the heat increased until the city was a burning, echoing emptiness, Jameson took the resolution which led to his downfall. His wife was visiting her mother. The children were at camp. There was no reason why he should stay in town. He decided to spend a few days at the beach. He had no reservations. Perhaps the moral of this history, the man in the orange armchair said, is always to make reservations. He tried first at the Belmont Pierre, a deluxe hostelry surrounded by 27 acres of gardens where he and Mrs. Jameson had always stayed before. From there, growing less choicy with every refusal, he visited eight or ten hotels, each slightly lower in the social scale than the one before. He came to rest at last in a boarding house. Even for a boarding house, it was low. Only the hottest August in 32 years would have induced Jameson to put up with it, but a wonderful cool breeze fluttered his room's dingy curtains, and he could get all his meals, except breakfast, at restaurants. So he decided to stay. The clientele of Sea Haven was as dubious as the food. There was a young man who wore a bracelet on one wrist, a woman with a dry, scaly skin who slapped constantly at an imaginary fly on the bridge of her nose, and a child who brought decomposed starfish and bits of rotting seaweed into the dining room. And there was Madame Zilfa. Jameson noticed her particularly because she had the room next to his, and all day long people knocked at her door. She came down to breakfast the first morning of Jameson's stay, wearing an ankle-length frock of magenta-colored chiffon, with sequins sewed all around the edge of the wide, wide skirt. The top part of the dress was covered by a little black plush jacket, and around her neck she wore a pallid, stringy bit of fur. Her eyes were the exact greenish-yellow of a cat's. Despite her sallow skin and dusty braids, she had a sort of haggish handsomeness. Jameson decided that she looked like a fortune teller at the street fair and was pleased with the accuracy of his diagnosis when the landlady told him, with shy pride, that Madame Zilfa gave readings in her room. On the second night he slept at Sea Haven, Jameson was awakened by the thin tootling of a flute. He tried to go back to sleep at first, but the noise, though slight, was persistent. Jameson turned on the light, saw that it was nearly two o'clock, and after a moment's indecision got up and rapped sharply on the wall between his room and Madame Zilfa's. The noise of the flute continued for a few minutes more, then it stopped, and somebody, Madame Zilfa, gave a low laugh. To the sound of the flute, there succeeded a soft mouse-like scurrying, a gentle patter of little sounds. Jameson wondered vaguely as to what the noise could be, and then went back to sleep. Jameson should have left Sea Haven then and there, the man in the orange armchair said. But would you gentlemen have found anything so alarming in the sound of a flute? I think not. Poor old Jameson. The next night, the routine with the flute was repeated, only this time it was nearly 2.30 when Jameson awoke. Once more, he rapped on the wall. Once more, after an interval, the sound of the flute ceased, and Madame Zilfa laughed. Again, Jameson listened to the complex of mouse-like noises and wondered what they were. He was growing curious. 
This in itself would have led to nothing, nor was his purchase of a roll of peppermints during his postprandial stroll along the beach necessarily dangerous, but the package of candy placed insecurely on the edge of the dresser fell off and rolled under it. Jameson had to move the dresser out to get his candy back, and when he was picking up the dusty, hairy, filthy roll, he discovered a crack in the wall. It was rather a wide crack, about three inches above the baseboard. Jameson ought to have moved the dresser back against it and forgotten it. Instead, his joints creaking, he squatted down and looked through it into Madame Zilpha's room. The Sybil was out at the moment, which was fortunate for Jameson since it deferred his doom by several hours. What he could see of her room was draped in rusty black, embroidered with the signs of the zodiac. On the table in the center of the apartment, there was a crystal ball and a limp pack of playing cards. And up to the right, on top of a dresser like the one in Jameson's own room, there was a flute. And beside it, a small, square, heavy, brass-bound chest. There was a padlock on the chest. Jameson hung a soiled shirt over the crack with a thumbtack so no ray of light would warn Madame Zilpha when she returned. The remainder of the evening he spent in restless speculation. When it was time for bed, he took off his shoes and his coat, turned off the light, and laid down on his uneven mattress. The first tootle of the flute awakened him. Very cautiously, he groped his way across the room toward the crack. He located the pendant shirt, pulled the thumbtack out, and eased himself into a semi-recumbent position before the opening. He looked in. Madame Zilpha was sitting cross-legged on the floor, three or four feet in front of him. The brass-bound chest, the lid open and thrown back, stood at her left, and she was leaning toward it and playing the flute over it. The soft, plaintive noise went on for a considerable length of time while Jameson watched and grew fidgety with expectation. At last, Madame Zilpha stopped, laid the flute aside, and got to her knees. She reached into the box and began lifting objects out of it carefully and setting them on the mat in front of her. Jameson had expected, I think, said the man in the armchair, upholstered in orange, serpents as much as he had expected anything. What Madame Zilpha actually got out of the box was a number of figurines of dark brown wood, not over two inches high, and carved to represent men. They wore conical thatched straw hats like Oriental peasants, and in the hands of some of them were tiny hoes and mattocks and pruning knives. Lastly, Madame Zilpha got from the chest what looked like a little bundle of dry twigs. The men began to move about on the surface of the carpet. Some of them hacked it at surface with a little mattox, and others followed behind them and planted the twigs in the furrows the mattox users had made. As Jameson watched, the tiniest froth of green began to appear at the top of the twigs. It expanded and grew, and Jameson saw that the little men had planted cuttings of minute grapes. And after those who had done the planting came those who pruned the vines and those who cultivated the surface of the mat with hose. Madame Zilpha reached into the chest once more and brought out what seemed to be a miniature cider press. By now there were distinct touches of purple among the leaves of the vine. The workers walked up and down the rows, stripping off the bunches of grapes and carrying them to the press. This all sounds very improbable, does it not? Said the narrator in the armchair. 
Very improbable. And so Jameson thought as he watched it going on, once or twice he shut his eyes and opened them again in the hope that the action would cause the mannequins to cease their agricultural operations. It had no such effect. By now, juice was beginning to drip from the tiny press. From the chest, Madame Ziltha extracted a low, shimmering, orbicular cup of pale yellow porcelain. She set it under the press, and the small, gleaming purple drops trickled into it. As the cup grew full, the little workers stiffened into the immobility of wood. Madame Ziltha picked them up carefully and put them back in their box again. The cup was full to the brim. Madame Zilpha blew on it three times and raised it to her lips. Jameson, in his anxiety to see everything, shifted his position. The heel of his hand came down on the thumbtack. Involuntarily, he yelped, and Madame Zilpha raised her eyes and looked directly into his. The next thing Jameson knew, he was standing in front of the sorceress, having left his room behind him in a rush. He rather thought he had left his body, too, for though it was warm evening, he was feeling most distressingly cold. For a space, Madame Zilpha looked at him and meditated, smiling unpleasantly, while Jameson wriggled around on her gaze like a caterpillar on a pin. Now by Isis and Osiris and Anubis, the conductor of the dead, the sorceress said, by set the ill-minded and hawk-headed Horus, by the weigher of hearts and the guardian of the gates. And she went on for quite a time invoking various heathen deities whom poor old Jameson had never heard of before. So you, you little squirt with the pot belly, you were watching me the whole time I performed the lunar oblation, were you? Ha! I like your nerve. And having apparently arrived at the end of her invective, she tapped her teeth and looked at him. Jameson painfully felt his disembodied condition. Even if he had been able to think of anything to say in his defense, he lacked a throat to say it with. But even in this dreadful moment, he could not help observing that Madame Zilpha's neck was dirty and that her lipstick had been patchily applied. For your curiosity alone, you deserve to be punished, the enchantress said. But when I think that you have spoiled the charm for who knows how many tens of years, when I consider that your profane gaze has sucked the virtue from my puppets of basuto wood and rendered the juice of my moon grapes no more potent as an elixir than so much wine vigor, then, and Madame Zilpha gnashed her teeth at him, we must try to suit the punishment to the crime, she said at last. Do you, then, hunt basuto wood and moon grapes cuttings for me? I anticipate it will take you quite a time, but do not let that worry you. You have all eternity before you. On your way, then, on your way... And with a rush and a thump, Jameson was back inside his body again. Since then, gentlemen, the man in the armchair stretched out his legs and sighed. Poor old Jameson has been pretty much on the go. He's been twice to Africa hunting basuto wood and once to the mountains of the moon after the moon grapes. And the second time in Africa, he had filarial fever and thought he was going to die, but he didn't. That's the funny thing about Jameson. There's always money in his pockets and he can't seem to die. When he was in South America, Bushmaster stung him 
and his hand rotted, and then his whole side. It hurt so much he asked the people with him to kill him, but they were frightened and ran away, and after a while, he got over it. He always gets over it. Once he was down in a submarine hunting the moon grapes and something went wrong with the pumps. Everyone else drowned, but poor old Jameson went floating up to the top and stayed there for days. His tongue swelled up with thirst and he wanted to die that time too, but he couldn't. And after a while, a ship picked him up. The only chance, he thinks is that sometime they'll develop a rocket ship that will go to the moon. If there are moon grapes anywhere, they'll be on the moon. Don't you think so, gentlemen? Of course, that would leave him still hunting the basuto wood. By the way, none of you know anything about basuto wood, do you? Or moon grapes? I thought not. You don't know how tired I get of hunting them. <laughs> um... <laughs> I guess I should have seen the twist coming at the end uh, earlier than I did, but um, I thought uh, I thought this is one of those tall tales that we see from people like Arthur C. Clarke uh, and Isaac Asimov, and of course Lord Dunsany, um, the Jorkins tales, the Black Widowers tales, the. Uh, White Tales of the White Heart, or even Larry Niven's The Draco Tavern Tales. This is a a kind of um, men's gentleman's club story, an adventurer's club story, where a bunch of men sitting around in armchairs uh, tell topper stories to each other about, you know, when I was in Africa, I had this happen to me, and um, right. And that's what we have. That continues. Yeah, yeah, and this is right. that is what this is. But there's the twist that we find out that uh, the uh, the guy we think is telling us about Jameson is actually Jameson. Um, but also there is a there must be an outer narrator as well who has captured this narrative for us because uh, we have this said the man who was sitting in the armchair with the orange upholstery that comes up again and again. Um, it, I don't think so. No. Tell me more. Yeah, I, I think. I think the parenthetical said the man who was sitting in the armchair with the orange upholstery. That I mean, if you're saying that's a third person narrator who is not Jameson, right? If that's what you mean. all the stuff in the parentheses is right, which is which comes up. Only often enough to let us know that what we're observing is somebody talking about Jameson in the third person. Yes. Um, which raises the fascinating question well beyond the tall tale um, genre. Why does Jameson, who is trying to get rid of his curse, why does Jameson think that referring to himself in the third person will serve his purpose? <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I, I, I'm thinking that that's just an extra little twist she added in there for fun. Um, on the other hand, there's some, uh, this is, there are no jokes in this story, but it's a funny story. It's a funny story, not just because of the situation that he got put in, but the way he ends it, which is, by the way, you guys haven't seen any Basuto word or, or nowhere to find moon grapes, do you? Right. <laughs> the I reason I'm telling funny. you this I, story, dot dot dot. 
I think it's funny for other reasons, too. I think the style is really remarkable. Oh, yeah. Um, for instance, on, on the very first page, the clientele are, are uh, described. The clientele of Sea Haven was as dubious as the food. Mm. Right? Wonderful analogy there uh, or simile. There was a young man who wore a bracelet on one wrist. This is uh, 1946, Nine, 49, 49, yeah. 49. Um, a man wearing a bracelet on his wrist is, is rather outre, so mm-hmm. he's some kind of an oddity. A woman with, a, with dry, scaly slit skin who slapped constantly an imaginary fly on the bridge of her nose. What a terrific image Amazing. that is to let us know that there's this rather weird person here right? mm-hmm. and the scaly skin suggests that she's not in the best of health or the most w- wonderfully attired and we already know it's an economically lower class hostlery and a child who brought decomposed starfish and bits of riding seaweed into the dining room mm-hmm. and there was Madame Zilfa so we've got all of these I think quite humorous ironic descriptions Amazing. right and then and it's going to get even better than that. What mm-hmm. could a Madame Zilfa be? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's funny because of the style, the the attitude that Jameson, as we now know, is the is the, the the main narrator. The attitude Jameson has to the world that he began in was one of uh, detached superiority. You're right. He, right. So these are are irons from from his viewpoint he gets less detached once he gets trapped <laughs> but then we get that that funny ending as you say you know do you happen to know anything about this stuff gentlemen <laughs> and that's so pretty I detached he's so detached right. he, he 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 refers to himself in the third person <laughs> i mean yeah. he literally becomes if you look at the illustration it, it uh virgil finlay has taken the the implied and made it real he he doesn't have a body when he enters her room right he's just spirit um and uh suddenly finds himself back in his own body and now he's cursed to travel the world uh no matter how much how many times he thinks he's going to die from whatever uh, accident has befallen him in his search he can't die so he's cursed to travel the world looking for two things basudo would which is the stuff that allows the moon grapes to grow, maybe? Or maybe that's the men uh, are made of basudo wood. And the, uh, the moon grapes, which, you know, he's hoping if one day I, I'm going to have to live through this, when they invent a rocket to go to the moon, maybe I'll find them up there? <laughs> Ridiculous. Right. I, I, I highlighted that uh, passage as well, describing the other the clientele of the Sea Haven. Um, and I was thinking, this is this is the kind of writing that makes me love reading, because I was thinking after reading the story again, I thought, you know, each of those is a story unto itself. Each of these weird people, right? The the man who wore a bracelet on one wrist. I I, I can picture him at the table, sort of looking over nervously and some sometimes covering up <laughs> a bracelet at the other breakfast guests, right? Um, it's a room and board, uh, room and, uh, it's a bed and breakfast essentially, um, where I, Madame Zilpha lives, right? She's moved in there, at least for the summer. Um, the child doesn't seem to have any parents (laughs) or maybe she does. Maybe, maybe the man, uh, with the bracelet is her father and the woman who slaps idly at an imaginary fly at the bridge of her nose 
is uh, her mother? We don't know. What we do know is that each of them is a story unto themselves, right? There's so much possibility opened up with them. And what's funny is our our narrator, who describes, uh, (laughs) I guess, describes himself as a prosperous roofing contractor, um, his plan is to uh, escape to the sea, uh, for to escape the heat of August, but he made no reservations, and so he is reduced to this very poor hostelry. The only virtue it seems to have is that it has a nice cool breeze going through it, which is what you want in the hot heat. Um, but <laughs> the narrator, um, I guess I, I just I keep attributing it to the narrator, but it's actually Margaret Sinclair. Um, the third paragraph starts. He had no reservations. Perhaps that is the moral of this history. <laughs> what a, a takeaway. Always make reservations. Otherwise, oh. you might end up cursed to walk the earth looking for things that don't exist. But Jesse, I may be overreading the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that sentence has two meanings. Okay. I think that... Now we are presumably years after the events that are being narrated because Jameson has made two trips to Africa, one to South America, and so on. So this is years have passed. Jameson's had a lot of time to think about what's going on. And he may well be saying that the moral of the story is he should have had reservations. Sure. He should have not invaded Madame Zilpha's space. He should not have looked through the crack in the wall. Mm-hmm. When I think about that crack in the wall, I think of a vertical slit. I know we're told it's mm-hmm. three inches above the baseboard. I think of it as being two or three inches of vertical slit that he can look through. I'm reminded very much of the tale of Actian and Ovid, who manages to part the uh, shrubbery and see Diana bathing mm. with her nymphs. She sees him. And curses him, turns him into a stag, and he's pulled down by his own uh, hunter, his own uh, hunting uh, hounds, and and torn to pieces. Here, he looks into her room. He knows it's wrong. Yep. He knows it's wrong. That's why he puts up the thumbtack so that he'll be able to go back and do it without giving away what he's doing. He should have had reservations. It seems to me that one way to look at this story, not necessarily from Jameson's viewpoint but from that of the implied author, who, for convenience, we can call Margaret St. Clair. This is a critique of middle-class self-satisfaction, <laughs> right? Yep. This guy never crossed the line between business practice and skullduggery. That means, in other words, he was pretty damn close to skullduggery. He never actually had an affair. But when his wife was out of town and the kids were at camp, he decided to go to the beach on his own. Yep. Right. I mean, so this is a guy who's a, a a successful roofing contractor. He's supposed to cover things up, mm-hmm. and he makes a living by doing that. He's got a pot belly, we're told. Mm-hmm. Right. So he is self satisfied, pity bourgeois, and in fact, when he looks at powers that are beyond his his self satisfied ken, he is in deep trouble. This woman, like Diana in in Ovid's tale, this woman can take him utterly and and consign him 
to a life that looks luxurious. Aha, uh-huh, you've seen this, have you? You'll always have money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. But in fact, is a curse. He will suffer the agonies of death again and again, never being able to die. And I've got to say, when I look at the Wikipedia article on Margaret St. Clair, mm-hmm. and I see her picture, and I hear this description of a haggish um, handsomeness, and I read about her and her husband both being Wiccans. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that what we have here is a story of Madame Zilpha criticizing the middle-class wife that Margaret St. Clair herself decided to go beyond. Her de- The description of her, um, he sees now that she has a dirty neck and that her, that her uh, lipstick was poorly applied, right? Mm-hmm. He was observing her before that. He was observing her at the dinner table where he noted her wide, wide dress, right? And... So he is a careful observer, um, and, and he thinks of himself as detached. But what's so funny is he's also going back and telling us this story. So he's the one who tells us, we find out, about his own pot belly. <laughs> he's right. the one who tells us about what what mistakes that he made. So in the description of his doom, that word comes up at least three times. Um, and the number three, you know, for the incantation, she blows on the mm-hmm. on the cup three times, which you don't blow on wine, right? But she is she's calls it an oblation, which is a a, a gift for a god, right? Um, and she, she the description here of him um, taking in his food is hilarious. He was growing curious. This in itself would have led to nothing. Nor was his purchase of a roll of peppermints during his postprandial stroll along the beach necessarily dangerous. That is what I'm talking about. Funny. How can purchasing of <laughs> some peppermints cause danger? Oh, it's too spicy. <laughs> no, no. It be, it's the shape. It rolled off. <laughs> and, right. and that's what led to his doom. A series of small coincidences, right? Um, and he is like that curious cat that he sees in her eyes her yellow Mm -hmm. eyes right he's the one hiding looking through the hole in the middle that we know it's two two o'clock in the morning the first time this happens 2 30 in the morning the third time it happens i'm assuming it's three o'clock in the morning the third times it happens the witching hour we have no idea i i've i've looked through the story a couple of times we have no idea why she's doing what she's doing is that like to make her immortal could be she's calling on ancient you know uh egyptian gods has she been around since ancient egypt we don't know what we do know is he's cursed and his curse comes from basically just being a peeping tom yep yep but he doesn't want us to think that and that i think it makes him uh, an iron as well One of the reasons, I would suppose, for doing this in third person is that the narrator wants to get his auditors to believe that his fate is utterly accidental, Mm. that he had no agency in bringing about his fate. This brings me back to the line of business practice versus skullduggery. Mm -hmm. If he hadn't been caught looking into the room 
then he wouldn't have done anything wrong. You know, but being a peeping Tom is wrong whether you're caught or not. <laughs> so what Jameson wants to do is get some help. Uh, but he can't do it, I think, if he acknowledges his own agency to begin with. You can't just walk up to people and say, I, I need to find Basuto. Can you help me? <laughs> right? He needs to draw people into his <laughs> viewpoint. In other words, it looks like it's a story just of somebody who gets cursed, one of those tall tales. Mm -hmm. But in fact, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.